I'm not a big fan of the term translator, but that's exactly yeah. what I am, is that I'm not a deep data scientist expert. I can do models, I can understand them, I can talk the language, ask a data scientist to explain to me what he's doing and to try to be integrated into the details. Not sure I can do it myself, but on the other side is I can also translate in the other way as to the outputs and talking to business people, explaining in very simple terms, try to convey the fact that the trust that there needs to be in this, trying to make it not complex, make it simple, Hi, and welcome to Data Futurology, the podcast where we cover strategy and leadership in data science, analytics, and artificial intelligence. My name is Felipe Flores. I am your host. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks so much for listening. Great to have you here for another episode. Today, we're speaking with Max Metra. He is the Senior Analytics Manager at Formula One. For, for the people that I spoke to uh, before recording this episode, obviously, I was quite excited to speak with Max. And as I was telling um, some of my friends, everyone was saying like, Max has got the dream job. And I can tell you that's definitely the case. You're going to listen to his story, his journey, what he does on his day-to-day. Super, super interesting. In the past, he worked at Michelin. So the entire company, they would get done about driving behavior and they had to analyze that. So he tells us a little bit about what he found there. He also worked at City Football Club. So they have Manchester City, New York City Football Club, Melbourne City Football Club, and a few others. So working in the analytics space with football clubs, also very, very cool. And he tells us about the different sides of the businesses and how they applied analytics differently. So when you think about a football club as a business, there's multiple areas where analytics can be applied. And he gives us a really good description of what those look like. And he's been almost three years at Formula One. And it tells us how in that time, it's gone from being prehistoric uh, when it comes to a data perspective, all the way to using computer vision and quite advanced models in order to improve the fan experience. It's always all about the fans. The chat with Max was absolutely brilliant. I hope you enjoy it. Here is Max Metral, our conversation. Let me know what you think. Thanks. Awesome. Hi, this is Felipe. Today I'm speaking with Max. Max, thanks so much for joining the show. How are you doing today? Very good. Thank you for having me, Felipe, despite the time difference. Oh, mate, I'm very, very excited to get a chance to hear your story and for us to have a good conversation. So can you take us back to the origin story? How was it that you first got interested in the data, in the data world? And how was it that uh, it pulled you in? I think so. At first, I'm not really have a background of engineer or anything like this. I did a business school and I was always interested in what I was doing my studies in mathematics and so on and so forth. And I think what got me into it is... I had a marketing class back in business school where the professor was teaching it in a very data analytical way. And I've always been interested in solving problems. That's what gets me, if you want to get my interest, give me a problem, I'm going to try to give you a solution. I love the idea of answering a real life business problem with data. And that's what got me into it. And when I was in business school, so I have a business degree, I did major in data analytics, which got me into it. So that's why I'm not really a data scientist per se, but that's how I got into it. That's fantastic. And from there, what was the first step in your professional life into data? 
So, I got the chance. So, that was not that very long ago, not that old. So, it was the first time where business schools was getting into data analytics. And I had the chance to work on some projects while I was still in business school. And so, at the time, I had the chance to work on the Six Nations projects on rugby. So, that was really cool. I got really, really into it, uh, creating some algorithm to score player and team performance. Wow. So, that was one of the first steps that I did alongside some other things. After that, I had some experience of being a French person coming from Clermont-Ferrand. This city is well known for being the Michelin headquarters, so the tire manufacturer. So I went back home to work a bit for Michelin on a project around analyzing driving behavior data. That was really cool. And then... I finally made my way into the sport industry that I really wanted to discover. Went into uh, work for City Football Group, so the holding company of Manchester mm-hmm. City Football Club, Medbourne, that you might know, and Medbourne City FC and many other clubs, and from now to, to Formula One. That is crazy. That is crazy. <laughs> and tell me a little bit about your experiences along the way. Like, what was it like going into driver's behavior working at, at Michelin? Did you find things that were unexpected? Do you have any memories of what surprised you? How was that time? Yeah. So the interesting thing on that end was this is going to be a tricky example because in Europe, we drive on the, on the good way of the road and in Australia, we drive on the, on the wrong way, right? That's how I say it. I guess it's a, it's a perspective thing. So let's take the example from Australia. If you take the driving data on one corner, whatever corner you want, and so there is a, a way that the average speed in one way is slower or if you see the way is faster than the other way. And what would you think that is the case? Like the exact same corner, depending you take it from one way or the other, obviously depending which side of the road, what do you think goes into this? Because that is, for me, was to be interesting as to, oh, how can that happen? Yeah, so I, I would say the side that has the priority would have a faster speed. So if it's taking the turn, I assume that would be a faster turn. So it's not an intersection, it's just a corner. It's just a corner. So the idea is, if you're on the inside, technically, the faster you go, the more you're going to go into the exterior. Right. Uh-huh. And so if the exterior is the opposing line, you're more likely to be slower because you're, you're afraid that you might crash into someone else. When if you're on the yes. outside of the corner, this is when you're going to get faster because you can see what the limit is and you don't have, you have the danger of going, going out, but you don't have the danger of facing someone. And so that's why yes. you can see these things. The funny thing was also, you wow. can see very clearly where the, I'm not sure if you have this in Australia, but where this in France, where the, the radar, so like the to check your speed are, because you should check the speed line, everyone goes down to the normal speed. And so you can automatically detect all the radars in France just by doing this. That's amazing. And I think in general in France, like you guys are quite fast drivers. Is that right? I don't know. I haven't been that far in my analysis. You, you're the one saying this. I'm not. <laughs> Taking no responsibility there. Yeah, no, I remember um, yeah, driving in some French roads. And I think we were doing at one point, say, like 20 Ks over the speed limit. And we were the slow ones. Everyone's just like overtaking <laughs> us, honking us. That is awesome. And then why did you decide to make the move into sports? The truth is I wanted to get into sports before then. I think I always was interested in the sports industry like many other people are. And I really wanted to get into it. And I saw data analytics as a good way to get into this. And also because Mm -hmm. I had the interest for the industry before finding what would be a good job for me and what could be something that I could be both good at and enjoying what I'm doing. I saw into sports a very massive opportunity because this is, it was at the time and still is to this day, very immature industry in terms of using data analytics in the sport industry compared to banking, online retailing, all these things of much more data, way more advanced than where we are. So 
even when I was a mission, I really had the sport in mind as the next step. Nice one. So the interest in sport came almost before the interest in data. Is that is that right? Yes, I think it did. And and then so to be so at first the way a revelation one day, which might be a big thing to say, but I was on my own paying for my first holiday anywhere. I went to the US and before then I emailed lots of people working in the industry, in the sport industry. And some people did reply and I had the chance to have a, a coffee with one person who at the time was managing data analytics for Monumenta Sports, which is the holding company of the Washington Wizards, the Capitals in hockey, the Mystics in WNBA, and they own the arena in DC. And wow. the person, so that was around 2013, I believe, or 2014. I was getting, just having a coffee. My expectations were, I thought you would tell me that we're doing this for 10 years. They're super good, amazing, nothing more to do with. And little that I know, I just was being told the story that only half of the teams were doing it on the commercial side of the business and that the opportunity was wide open for anyone to do it and that they were just at the beginning. And so I was like really pumped up by like, whoa, there is some space for me in there. <laughs> Definitely, definitely. And at the time, where were you working at the time? At the time, I was finishing my studies. So it was perfect timing for me to get fully into it. So that was before the Michelin thing. And fantastic initiative to start reaching out to people, not only while you're still at university, but when you were traveling. So that was, yeah, was well, that actually a holiday? Yeah, well, for me, holidays are never really holidays anyway. I always try to go to as many sporting events as possible and like enjoy myself, I guess. I like to exchange. But that's awesome that you're reaching out to people in the industry at that point. And in this case, like you got such an important perspective of the industry that helped you make your decisions going forward. That's awesome. And when you were working in the holding company for the football clubs, what was that time like? I loved it. Oh my God. I loved it so much. So I was based in Manchester. This is where the headquarter is for City Football Group. I was spending most of my time on Manchester City, to be very honest, about 70% and the rest somewhere around the remaining time, both for New York and Melbourne. They were not the only clubs, but they were the clubs that needed a bit more support in terms of data. I was super interesting. I had lots of ideas I wanted to implement. I had the chance to implement lots of them, being the first person to really go into machine learning examples, not just simple. So they had business analysts. They didn't have anyone who could yep. bring the machine learning to life, doing some very simple, nothing crazy models about trend modeling, predictive on the sales perspective, helping the salespeople on the phone, but do a better job trying to help them save time and improve their efficiency. I loved it so much. Also being part of a club, like the Monday yep. fitting in the office, depending on the result of the weekend, is really interesting as to if we win by 3-0 everyone's super happy super pumped up if we lose and I was like oh and then we because we know it has a big effect on the sales for the next game so it's very an interesting thing to work into a sports club wow that's so exciting and uh, I like the fact that you were or it sounds like you were focusing on kind of like on a marketing angle when we're working with the clubs and I think that's really interesting and really important because at least what I've found is when I look at industries that I haven't worked in, I think of them as like a, or it's easy to think of them as a hazy mystery to say like, oh, I have no idea what could happen over there. And I think it can stop people from making the leap into areas that they would be really interested in. So in your case, did you find it surprising that you were working on marketing analytics once you made the move into a football club? No, actually, I that's what I wanted. So 
The idea is that if I go back to the history of using data in the sport industry, if you think mm -hmm. of all the club, all the entities, organizations that are incentivized on the sporting results, so more so as the clubs, the leagues are a bit different because depending who wins doesn't really change much to the business. F1, if mm -hmm. it's Mercedes or Ferrari, doesn't change my life. If I'm Man City, I want Man City to win. So the idea is for all these mm -hmm. teams or organizations that are incentivized on the sporting results. The history of data analytics started with, there are two types of data analytics in sports. One, which, which I call sports analytics, which is using data to improve the sports performance on the pitch, on the field, mm -hmm. on the track. If you're an F1 team, this is one side. And the second side is business analytics, which is using data to improve business performance. Whatever that might be, doesn't have to be related to revenue. It could be fan engagement. The KPIs may not be need to be related to revenue, but these are business KPIs. And so first and foremost, it's very dedicated to the sports analytics because this is where anyone would generate more revenue. If you have 10 million to invest and you're a football club, you'd better off trying to find the best player for that price than to invest in your business analytics capabilities because you're never going to generate that much revenue compared to what you can get from a player. I'm sure you're familiar with the European football. If you get the Champions Leagues, you get between 20 and 30 million euros more a year. So this is where, if you look at the numbers, this is where you should invest your money. So this is where it starts. And then once the organization gets bigger, since you're trying to, the point of investing in business analytics is to go the other way as to, I don't want to be too dependent on the sporting results. I want to make sure that even if I get a bad year, my minimum gets bigger, I have a bit less swing based on the sports results. Mm -hmm. So that's why it's taking a bit longer because usually teams try to get the sports analytics right before getting to the second leg. That's why we're very late. And I think the US is much advanced on these things, not on everything, but, and that's why Europe is a bit lagging behind. I don't know about Australia to be very honest with you, but I think that's the trend in the industry. So for me, I saw it as an opportunity. I didn't want to go into sports analytics because I feel like you're a bit stuck into one sport. If you're an F1 engineer developing cars and using Using data to make the car go faster. Can you really translate this into football, into rugby, into basketball? I don't know. Business? Yeah. I can be working in any industry, to be honest. Not that I really want to, but you can translate yeah. more to what you're doing. That is a very smart move on your part. Was it deliberate? Was it by design or chance? And how did that come about? Uh, you choosing uh, the business analytics side in sport? Yes, it was. I think because I, after that, having that meeting face-to-face -face with that person in the US, I came back and I kept having discussions. So more on the phone than face-to-face -face with lots of people. And I realized that my expertise became, and, and still is to this day, more CRM related. CRM analytics, how to treat fans, how to treat customers, how to everything around this. Obviously, it goes much yeah. beyond this, especially at F1. I'm sure we can talk about this. But the idea is I knew that's what I wanted. I knew that's what the industry was missing because of talking to people. So that was the right fit mm. for me. And I think I was extremely lucky to be the right person with the right type of skills at the right time. And more or less a few years I'm not sure I would have been able to have, have the same opportunity to work both for City Football Group and for F1 because I'm sure you're familiar with the subject, but uh, there is a really interesting article which was published in Harvard Business Review, which is called, you don't have to be a data scientist to do this must-have analytics role. And they talk about translators. So I'm not a big fan of the term translator, but that's exactly yeah. what I am, is that I'm not a deep data scientist expert. I can do models. I can understand them. I can talk the language, ask a data scientist to 
explain to me what he's doing and to try to be integrated into the details. Not sure I can do it myself. But on the other side is I can also translate in the other way as to the outputs and talking to business people, explaining in very simple terms, try to convey the fact that the trust that there needs to be in this, trying to make it not complex, to make it simple. I know these things, so I'm really at the crossroad of these two things, trying to make things work within the business. I think that's what the that industry is, that- needed because it's very immature. Interesting. And why is it the fact that it was early stages for the industry in terms of analytics? Why do you think that that's the point where the analytics translators are mostly needed? Good question. There are different things. First, in the sports analytics side, I think there is a tendency to have the same people doing the same things the same way over and over again. And if you're familiar with the book and the movie Moneyball, that's what you can see in it. It's like, oh, we've always done this this way. What should we change? And so it's very difficult to go against the culture. That was one step Mm -hmm. into the sports world. Moneyball, the book, the movie, Brad Pitt and everything made people change their perception, both in baseball and other sports. Now it's everyone used the expression, we are the money ball of, add the word you want. That's what people are saying. And then this translates slowly into the sports side, and then it gets into the business side and much after. And I think it's mm-hmm. because you still have the same people running the organizations. They may not be super data savvy, know that they need to, but then it's starting to get. And so that's why if you get into these organizations that may be still in the old mindset, they still understand there's the value to it, but they're not going to hire a data scientist because they don't know what the person's going to do anyway. So you need to start with someone who mm-hmm. can be in the middle of both worlds. And then you get slowly into it. You mature your organization. You start with a central data team, then you're trying to split it and trying to get a way around this. But in most sports organizations, you have one central data team, which for me is the, is really the beginning of the maturity level. And as you try to get deeper and deeper, mm-hmm. you get more into embedded teams. Oh, this, that's my view, actually. Maybe you know more into different industries, how they're doing it. Man, I completely share your view. I think that especially when an organization is first trying to understand what to do with data scientists, that it makes a little sense that that team is centralized so you can have consistent practices, sharing of knowledge, get the team working consistently. You can have hiring policies, promotions. You can look after the culture. And and as a group, you can tackle uh, specific problems that the organization has, obviously get those couple of wins on the board and then grow the understanding of the whole organization in terms of what data science can do. And over time, it gets to a point that more and more parts of the organization are comfortable with data science and they want people embedded in their areas. I could not agree more. Yeah, I definitely think that that's the case. There's a really good analogy, which isn't from me, that I really like you on this subject, is some people say they make the analogy between data and the rival of data in the world, even though it's been quite old, but people are trying to get to know it as the same as the rival of electricity. And apparently at that time, you had companies having chief electricity officer, which the sole job was to understand what we're going to do with this. If this is new, I don't know how to cope with it, what was happening. But now this doesn't exist anymore. It sounds very silly. That's my view as well as to what's going to happen with the data. I believe that in 20, 30 years time, we're going to hear a chief data officer. Where's that? We have data everywhere. What do you need someone to do that? I think it's just a transition period, which is going to take a long, long time, especially given depending on industry. But I think that's my view that at some point it's going to be part of everyone's job. And I don't think we're going to think of data and analytics the same way as we are today. Ah, man, could not agree more. Yeah, and I think especially the competencies that are currently being labeled as uh, analytics translator, I think that's the part that more, more and more people will get to understand. 
But I wanted to ask you, how has it been for in your career being and focusing on being the analytics translator? What have you seen as the benefits or the downsides? How has that influenced your position in the organization, your career in general? What things have you seen that come with that set of strengths of the analytics translator? So I start with a potentially negative side, which I don't think to be very negative, but I know that some for some people might be very disturbing. Is since you're a jack of all trades, you're technically an expert of nothing, which for some people it might be quite disturbing as to, well, you're good at a bit everything and you, your goal is to make things, everything is smooth. You talk to people, it's more to the soft skills than the hard skills. And for some people, this is quite hard to grasp and to understand and to feel comfortable with. It's fine with me, but I've heard that before. So that's why it might be disturbing for some people. But on the good side, it's amazing. I went to some organizations that were very immature. And so most of the people were seeing data and analytics as to some a way to help them. You see, I have some people that are a bit against it. And I see this as a challenge, how to convince, how to get into their head, what's wrong, what are they afraid of, and how to get around this. I really like that challenge. But more often than not, people are like, oh, thank God you're here. What can you do to help me? And then you're being seen as the person who's really helping everyone, trying to find solutions, going to some things that never seen before. And in some areas, they love you. They're so happy that you make their life easier. I love it, personally. Oh, that is fantastic. And tell me, how did you end up working at F1? Oh, I got, again, very, very lucky. So one person that I knew was just being hired by F1 and sending you a LinkedIn message. Hey, would you be interested in talking? I say, sure. I love my job at Man City, but... Why not talking? Within a few weeks, I was off to go to move to from Manchester to London and work for F1. So that was amazing. What I love the most was the challenge. So funny enough, in one of our discussions with my now boss at F1, who is the director of Insights, I remember telling him what I was doing in the city, what I wish we could do more of, and so on and so forth. And he was like, Max, I stop you right there. If you think you're not doing enough, at where you are right now, we are prehistoric at F1. Like, what, what do you mean? What data do you have? So, Max, we don't have no database. I'm like, what? What do you mean? What? No database? What is that? So F1, at the time, we had no fan-related database. What? Yeah, yeah no. That's the very shocking headline. Behind this is we were collecting data through lots of suppliers, but there was no central way to have access to it, to view it. You had to ask someone else outside of the organization to get some information, and there was no way to try and put things all together. We were not communicating yes. with our fans. We didn't have any CRM team. But to be fair, I think he was very normal according to the previous ownerships of Bernie. Yeah. Bernie was a master negotiator. Bernie was a, an amazing person who lifted the sport to where it is today. Amazing. The brand, really amazing. The business of F1, it's a two-bit dollar revenue business, mainly B2B on three different revenue channels, TV rights. Basically, we call them promoters, the people hosting the Grand Prix and paying the fees to get the Grand Prix and the sponsors. This is the B2B business. And you see the fans are behind all this. And this is why we get to make so we get to make these B2B revenue channels work because we have a really appealing sport, lots of fans and everything. But at the core of this, you don't have that much data. And so the way the way Bernie was saying this is is to these B2B partners to develop the sport and to invest and in making sure that we get the fans and everything around this. So it makes sense at the time. I think it's just that the new ownership was willing to explore a new way to go more B2B to C or to go directly to consumer. And that's why we created mm. our OTT F1 TV channel, which is basically selling rights directly to the end consumers. And this is when you start collecting lots of data, millions of data points. And this is when you need someone like me. But I'm just saying that it was normal at the time that they were not being that good. But given the new ownership and the new transition and the new goal, it was 
normal to try to get someone like me to try and put this in order. But that's what really get me when I was being told that there was nothing. I was both super excited to have a blank sheet of paper to start from scratch and scary because you start from scratch. <laughs> That's right. Completely from scratch. That's exciting. So the changes in the organization have been huge from a data perspective. Can you talk us through what were some of the main stages or some of the milestones, whether it was successful or not successful? What type of um, stories could you share during of the process? So I'm sure you're familiar with the Gartner graph, which I think is impact versus uh, complexity or the other way. And you start with getting the data in and then analyzing descriptive, predictive, prescriptive. Well, I've never seen that, but we started in the bottom bottom left corner, which is try to get the data in. So that was one of the first challenge, get everything together. Mm-hmm. I think F1, we've always been a very lean organization. We don't have that many people working at F1. That didn't change much. We obviously wow. got a bigger organization, but it's very, very lean. And so we have to rely on to work with very close partners to help us go through mm-hmm. this. So what I call the data legwork, which is lifting all the data, putting it together, merging ETL process, transformation, cleansing, everything. We don't do this ourselves. We have close yeah. partners, suppliers to work with. But that was the first step, getting this all together, going through all the painful points about data quality, all these things. That, was, that took some long time. And then getting mm-hmm. the tools and the teams in place to use it. Because I was part of the first higher wave F1. So before there was anyone, I joined before we had wow. a marketing team. Wow. Our director of marketing joined, I think, two weeks or a month after me. And at first she was alone. And then she got her team. And then, so I had to start so many things that I'm not an expert at. I had to start the CRM program. And mm-hmm. as I know what it is, I'm not an expert of it. So I was, thank God, when we got our head of CRM joiners, I thank God you're here. Here's everything. This is for you. You take it. I get it started, but then you take it. So most of that was super interesting because I had to start so many different projects that then I was handing over to the person in charge when they joined a few months or or years after. So now it's more of a streamlined process, be you business as usual, making this work, trying to find new projects. But first was really getting started. That was super exciting. Now, the way we see this, and that's also an interesting point is we're trying to help the business make better decisions thanks to data. Mm. I love, so I see in some mm. organizations, they call the data analytics team the decision science team. I love that name. I think it's perfect. How to be scientific yes. and make, making better decisions. I'm a big lover of that name. And so what we're trying to do on that end is we're not being data driven. We're trying to be uh, data informed. So we take data and mm-hmm. insights out of it and so on as a piece of information. But as I'm sure you know, the data may not always be accurate. The data may be misleading, may not be representing everything in many ways. So we're always trying to make sure that we can mistrust the data or the insights if we think there is need for it. And so that's why we always, we see ourselves as we're trying to help this making process, but we're going to make it for the people. Trying to help my director of digital on some project or director of TV rights or director or anything. But in the end, my role is to try and convince them that they make the decision with the information they have. They might have some that I don't have. So that's why we're trying to be more data informed than data driven, because I think it can be dangerous to be data-driven. Yes, definitely. I think it's a really interesting and important distinction because going completely data-driven, it's a bar that is very difficult, if not almost impossible to attain. It takes out or it implies the lack of human judgment. It implies a lack of qualitative information, intuition, etc. Not everything can be measured down to the degree that you need to measure it in order to get the certainty or you can't always get the data. How did you guys come to the point of uh, choosing that as a ethos or as a term to aim for being data-informed instead of data-driven? 
Good question. I think it came from uh, Sean Bratches, who is a commercial managing director. I think he was the one really enforcing this. So his uh, career was at ESPN before. I think that's maybe what he was doing there. I, I found that to be very interesting. I never really had an opinion, to be very honest with you, between the two. But when we had a discussion with them, it makes perfect sense. It's like this is another point of information which might be more important than the other pieces of information you might have when making a decision. But I really like the idea. And also, the funny thing is, when you look at the news, the websites or anything, the PR is all about the good stories about data. But you never hear about yeah. the bad ones. And that's what I found really interesting. And I remember reading an article about the use of data in football, so in soccer in Europe, and about someone called mm -hmm. Charles Reap who is the British person who did analysis in the 1950s. And because he made some mistakes uh -huh. in his data insights and then driving insights recommendations from data, he ended up uh, leading the British teams to use the strategy to always put the goal straight to the forward and try to do less than three passes. And that was based on the data mistake. I found that very interesting. Uh, and there is a selection bias into the stories you can read. And that's why I feel like you don't know the dangers of being data-driven because the people that get it wrong, you're never going to hear of them. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> that's really true. And um, what type of initiatives have you been working on in your time at F1? Obviously, the ones that you can share. What's your tenure there uh, look like so far? So the way I see this, I'm trying to make sure we have everyone across business, across different departments. So we try and do things on the spectator level, on digital, marketing, sponsorship, TV rights. So on the spectator level, one of the good projects we did lately was doing a linguistics analytics. So analyzing people talking online about F1 to live during the race. And so since you can match the exact timestamp for a message posted and so we know when the race was casted trying to see first and foremost the volume what the trend is across the race is it different per race and then mm -hmm. obviously more analyzing what they're talking about how are they expressing and the end point the question we were asking ourselves is what makes a great race I don't have the answer. It's, it's obviously very complex, but that's the question we're asking ourselves is to how can we define what a great risk is based on people talking online live during the race? What are they complaining about? What are they happy about? And it's fun to see that sometimes there's nothing to do with the racing. Like, yeah. Uh, was the 2017, I think, um, Spanish Grand Prix when we have a fan where Kimi Raikkonen went very early in the race, went out, and there was a camera angle to a young kid who was crying. And so it was like talking online and then and then at some point during the race, I guess the organizers found the kid and brought him to the paddock to see Kimmy in the what the race was still live. And then they were they were talking, it was whatever, giving a ice cream or something. And that blew off the internet. And sometimes it's like, okay, well, I can't really do anything about this, but it's still interesting. <laughs> but then there, there's some other thing that you can see in the patterns as to you can try and measure is DRS overtake creating more engagement than a non-DRS one? And what were all these things saying? Because we're doing lots of research and analytics, which basically is part of the same team. So the insights team, you have the research side, qualitative, quantitative, and all the data side that I'm in charge of. But the idea is when you do research, you specifically ask people to tell you what they like, what they don't like. So it's always good to do some passive research as to what people like and don't like just because they're talking online on Twitter or anything and to see yes. if it doesn't match because, and that's, I think that's normal, we're not always the best judge as to what we like or what we don't like, especially when you're being asked the question. Exactly, yeah. So, and have you found any surprises there that you can share? I don't 
think we have found any very specific surprises. I think we're still going through going more in depth. So we're also working on this with our motorsport team, uh, which is held by yeah. Ross Brown. So there's looking into obviously the regulation and everything. So they are going more and more in depth than we are into correlating this with the racing data as to nice. is there an impact? For instance, when there is an overtake between third and second, is it better or worse? To how much is it better than an overtake between 16 and 15? Is there anything mm-hmm. you can see into this? And so there's so many things. So first, what we saw is when we did the so we also do some biometric research. So people like have some devices on the hand measuring their excitement level. And it's based wow. on the broadcasting element. So we use that to help broadcasting as to what we could do better in terms of broadcasting, what all camera angles that people like, don't like, and everything. So one of the interesting, it sounds very obvious, but... A few years ago, at the beginning of the Grand Prix, we had a, a short, we still have a short intro, but the short intro was considered to be a bit too long and it was more general fact about the country. And then you could see the yeah. engagement dive in all our metrics. And so we tried to change wow. that. And now it, what you can see is when there is the presentation of the track, you do corner by corner and you see the best racing elements in the few years. So they say, oh, Austria turned two. This is what happened in 2015. And you see a crash, you see an impressive overtake. And this gets people excited. When before wow. it was more like, hey, this is Austria. This is the number of people living, whatever. And it sounds very obvious, but if you don't have the data to measure it, you can't really Correct. Test. Exactly right. I love those cases where in hindsight, it can seem obvious, but when you're trying to choose what you should show about a country or a race, I think that like people will naturally default to the information side of like, this is the country, this is what's happening, and not think about what in retrospect may seem like the obvious choice once you have the data to prove it. So I love that example. Sorry to interrupt. Exactly. No, no. I think that's what's interesting also about anything that we try and help our TV prediction team, because we also need to be aware as to who you're talking to. If you're talking and people have different needs, we only have one TV feed. So you need to make it accessible yeah. for someone who's never seen F1, not too complex, mm-hmm. they still understand what's happening. And also, mm-hmm. obviously, the hardcore fans, the one that we want to service, the one we keep them happy, they always want to see more of. So it's like you need to keep the balance to being easily understandable and still servicing everyone. Yeah. So it's a tough balance, but we're hopefully we're trying to do a good job. But that's very interesting. That's more on the spectator side. We're also doing some work as to the tracks are really big. We don't always go back to the same track every year. Sometimes the calendar changes. And so it's very difficult to put Wi-Fi around the track for very obvious reasons, price perspective. So Mm. we don't have a very good understanding as to how people behave around the track. We don't really collect data as to this. And so once you have a, a hundred thousand people on an event that runs for three yeah. days, there are many things you can do better. It's a fan zone, it's a merchandise point, it's a food and read, food and beverages, everything. And so we were mm. missing lots of data points on this. So if you don't have the data, we couldn't really make information in, informed decisions. So we're now not every Grand Prix yet, but we're doing footfall analytics. So we partner with a company. If your Wi-Fi is open on your phone, your phone is sending ping messages to try and find a network. So we can yes. identify your phone. It's still anonymous. We can talk to you who don't know who you are. It's GDPR compliant for anyone listening. We're all good on this end. But the idea is to try just for us to understand the footfall as to when people arrive, when do they leave, which gate do they use, how we can do better. And for instance, what we saw is, I think it was the 2017 US Grand Prix so the USA, uh, Austin, they have some really good concerts. And so we saw that, I think on the Saturday, we had a big spike of people arriving after the quality. It was super huh. interesting because the quality is really the main event of the Saturday. It's like, what's happening over there? And actually, because you had the Justin Timberlake concert. So you had a fair amount of people that arrived after because when you buy the ticket, you have access to the concert. And maybe they were not 
as engaged fans that are just waiting to go to the race and they say, oh, why not go to the Justin Timberlake concert? It's already paid for it. So they arrive just after after the quality to just go to the concert. So you see these things and like, and then the idea is how can we make some better use mm-hmm. of this? How can we serve these people better as well? So, and obviously the footfall as to how we can rearrange and where you can put our fan zone better. That's the very obvious thing. But that's also very interesting, the footfall analytics. So trying to help everyone. So that's more on the spectator side. On the marketing, but obviously CRM, very normal any company so that not much interesting i guess two other ones on the sponsorship side we're doing computer vision as to understand when the logos appear during the feed and how we can do it better Mm -hmm. for instance the 2017 singapore grand prix we had a massive crash at the beginning where you have the two Mm. ferraris when reaching max verstappen big crash this crash rather than replay during the whole grand prix and it was just in front of singapore airlines logo so the singapore airlines numbers so that Grand Prix went off the roof. Not that there's anything we can do about this, but my yeah. end also is making sure we deliver exposure for our partners and we're trying to make it fair. We're trying to deliver according to our contracts and everything. So we're doing lots of computer vision to understand this better, to try and see how we can do better. The end goal is making sure we don't disrupt the product for the fans because in the end, we are racing for the fans and we're not racing to put logos out there. So we're trying to integrate this as smoothly as possible. We try, so that's one of the things we're doing as well. So it's more computer vision. And lastly, on the more difficult side, because the data is not as of good quality and we don't have as enough data points, mm-hmm. is on the TV numbers. So we are unique in the way that we operate in 22 countries in the world or in many different countries, many different time zones. So the race is good and bad because yes. if you're... Die are different fan. You want to watch all the Grand Prix, especially if you're in Australia. You might have some yeah. sleep trouble at some points. But it's also good that if you live anywhere in the world, you're going to have at least once, if not more, in the year, a primetime event, which you can watch and enjoy without having to be sleep deprived. So you can think mm-hmm. both sides of the same coin. But the idea for us is we have a bit of leeway, like one hour plus one, two hours, minus one, two hours, where we can move the timing of the event without disrupting many things. And within that, yes. how we can arrange the 22 Grand Prix across the year to make sure we service as many fans as possible so that they can all watch that's very interesting analysis which obviously you can't really do A-B testing you can't really go back in time do the race another time minus one hour and see what works so it's very trying to get smart as to how you can measure this with the data you have and how we can make informed recommendations as to where it'd be better if we move the race an hour later an hour earlier trying to service Mm. as many fans as possible trying to improve and optimize our TV rights our TV audiences That is awesome. I'm impressed about both that you're using advanced machine learning methods as well as more traditional approaches, but also the combination that, as you said, you are a B2B business, but your asset is the fans and you do kind of like everything for the fans, really. So having that B2B to C component and leveraging the data from the individuals in order to provide something better for individuals, but also tied back to the B2B, to the sponsor side. I really like the interplay of the different combinations that you have going backwards and forwards between the two sides of the business that sometimes can be quite disjointed. But in your case, it seems like you guys have integrated them so well. well How did that come honest, about? I, I think the best way for us to develop our B2B business is to make sure we keep our fans happy, to make sure we yeah. grow our fan base, we keep our hardcore fans very engaged. We service everyone with what they want, what they need. And I just think that's the very interesting point about the sports industry in general. I think what some people mm-hmm. get wrong is that they think they see fans as customers and that's very important not to because my view is the fan the customer and the consumer might be three different people 
theoretically mm. speaking. You might be a fan yeah. and you don't consume and you don't buy. You might be a nostalgic fan. F1 was better before. So I don't really watch it anymore, but you're still a fan. You can be a consumer yeah. without being a fan. You can you can see a video on Facebook because one of your friends likes it or shared it or whatever. So you consume F1 content. You may not be a fan. And obviously, mm -hmm. the customer side is the various tiny, tiny subset of all these people. And since we're yeah. B2B2C and a bit direct to consumer now, B2C, but then most of our business is B2B2C, the best way we can do to improve our B2B business is to make sure we service our fans, keep them happy, we give them what they want. We're trying to find new fans in the world and trying to make them happy as well. So that for me, that's just a normal way to try and make sure we do better B2B. But that's also for me, one of the challenges for the future is the B2B itself. B2B is playing yes. with a very limited number of data. There are lots of unknown unknowns, which is what, what mm. I'm struggling with, which is what we're struggling with, is the lot of things that I don't know. I can't get data on. I'm not sure how to improve on this. That's I think the B2B world is very, very difficult. And we're lucky enough that we have access to lots of data, lots of wealth of information on the consumer side, the fan side, B2B to fan. That is, helps us increase our B2B business. But And that's why I see myself really operating in this environment when I think it's very difficult for B2B only companies. I agree. It's a huge, the B2B side is definitely has some very sparse data and some blind spots that are tough. I wanted to ask you about data that you guys might get from partners, maybe from the teams themselves might be most interested. How do you guys work with the teams and uh, is there any data sharing between you guys? So we work very closely with the team and what we call the F1 environment. So the sponsors of the environment, the broadcaster in the environment, we do have contractual relationship with any of these, with the teams, which we share part of the revenue, but we have a contract. So we're different entities, we're not the same company. Same as for the broadcasters, the sponsors and everything and the fact is we're trying to help anyone with the best way we can so for instance we give access to all of these people our sponsors the team of the broadcasters and anyone in the f1 environment f1 family to lots of data points lots of information lots of research actually more so as to subject we might be inquiring about fan research everything to make sure that they know all of this and there's no point in people spending the same spending the money twice for having the same insight so that we make sure that we yeah. don't double up on cost on this so we share a lot with them them. Technically, on the reverse side, is a bit more difficult because obviously the teams, as I told you, both the sport industry in general, they're any dollar they have, any pound they have, they want to invest it in the car. And that's very normal yeah. because that's what's going to yield the most revenue, the most return. They are very, very efficient in everything they do. They're very smart. So they have very small commercial teams because that's what they need right now. So they're not very advanced on the commercial analytics, business analytics side as of yet because they know they're going to make more revenue on the car side and by improving the sporting results is going to have the most result for them. And on the other side, they're also B2B businesses. They're selling sponsorship more so. And like yeah. us, they're B2B first and B2C, B2B2C first and then direct to consumer second. They obviously sell retail, which top of my head with the first points to generate directly from fans and from customers. But at some point, we don't really do data sharing on that side because we're different entities and obviously GDPR yeah. related. You can't really do that. But we're trying to do everything we can to help them because the idea is we are in this together. We mm. want the team to be doing well. This is good for everyone. If the sport is doing well, if we keep the team healthy, financially healthy and everything. So we are helping them to the best we can in every way possible. I am in touch with the team quite regularly to make sure that we try and support them, even though we don't do share data directly. And that's mainly for GDPR reason. Makes sense. With the time that we have left, I wanted to ask you quickly about your newsletter. 
actually. If you can tell us a little bit about how that came to fruition, what topics you cover, why those topics, if you can tell us a little bit about that. I didn't know you knew. Thank you. So the edit is, I did create, so I'm someone who likes to read a lot. I read a lot of articles. I consume lots of content on every day basis, every week. And at some point I started, so mostly sports related. I do have some, I've subscribed to maybe 20, 30 different newsletters. Most of them are sports related. Some of them are data analytics related. Since I, I read a lot of things, I'm quite disappointed by the media industry, let's say, or like the articles that I can find. There are lots of just news coverage. So that basically, the, you read the title, you know everything was in the article. And I find it difficult for me to read things that I liked and that I found interesting. And I value what I can learn. From an article. So what I was doing, to, what I started to do by myself was just keeping track of the articles I liked on my end. Yeah. And then I realized that actually that could be helpful to some other people that might be like me that have trouble finding good content. So I, I thought that why not doing a newsletter just as a, as a content aggregator? So I'm not creating anything. Technically, the added value is quite minimal. It's just trying to put everything together that I might have read across the week. And so I'm doing this yep. for the sport industry. And at first, I really was sharing this with my friends. So for a long time, I just had a couple of people. I was very happy because I was doing this on, by, for myself anyway. I was never really doing this for others. I was doing it for myself. And I thought it might be useful to other people. And now it became a sports newsletters so every week across five different topics, which is sports business, commercial and sponsorship, OTT and streaming, uh, social media and digital, and finally esports and gaming. And I just try and collate everything. I'm always amazed every time the start of the week, I'm like, oh, I'm never going to have enough to finish the week. And then at the yeah. end, I'm like, oh my God, I have too many. <laughs> so I hope you enjoy it if you, if you subscribe to it. Yeah, definitely, man. I find it really interesting. You cover more topics than what I expected that you would. So yeah, from OTT to social media, obviously a bit of data science in there too, and really interesting. So yeah, I definitely encourage people to look it up and we'll include a, a link to it on the show notes. Thank you. Max, I'm going to be respectful of your time. This has been fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing your journey, your learnings, your insights, your perspectives. I found it uh, super, super interesting. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you very much for having me, Felipe, and for making the time because obviously you can see it's daytime for me, but I know you're in Australia. So thank you for making the time on your end. Very happy to do it. That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or Instagram as Data Futurology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. If you like this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.